Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 227. And today on the show, we have a special guest named Arvid Call, who co-founded and bootstrapped FeedbackPanda.com from zero in revenue to $55,000 a month in recurring revenue and sold it within 24 months. Arvid then went on to write about his journey in a book that he published called Zero to Sold. And he talks about how he took his education and all the things that he learned about intentionally building a company to sell. He talks about how John Warlow's book, Built to Sell, helped him think about the business from the very beginning a different way. Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, all of these tactical ways on systematizing a company that allowed him to take Feedback Panda to $55,000 a month in recurring revenue with only two employees, him and his wife who was an English teacher that wanted to automate her problem. So Arvid was able to spot the problem that English teachers were having with giving feedback on their papers, created a system out of it, created the software, scaled it all up, and then was able to automate everything so much so that he was not, he didn't need to hire anybody else. Some of the things that you're going to take away from this is not only the mental journey, the emotions, and all the financial things that Arvid did to scale the company up, but then also he talks about his exit process, why he chose the company that bought him, his non-negotiables that he was able to get because he didn't need to sell. But some of the big takeaways are going to be related to the previous podcast I just did with my partner, Pat Hobby, about annual income versus long-term value creation. There was a key moment that I asked Arvid why he sold that I think you're really going to enjoy listening to because of how he responded to this and this whole concept of annual income versus long-term value creation and that shift in mindset is a real thing and Arvid explains how he looks at that problem as it related to Feedback Panda and how he looks at business today. A couple other themes that we're going to be talking about is why bootstrapping in a profitable business is a good thing compared to a lot of these SaaS companies that are raising VC money and burning through cash just to offload the sale to someone else. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Arvid has a lot of great gold nuggets. And if you want to dive more into annual income versus long-term value creation, it all starts with understanding business valuations so you can grow more value in the direction that you want to create more choices and more freedom. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Arvid. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Arvid, so we got, uh, we are clear across the world from each other, um, but in today's Zoom world, who cares? (laughs) And uh, brings people like you uh, onto the show. I'm super excited. And, uh, you know, 
small little story before we kick into the show. I was talking with my brother about my English teacher. So she just hit her hundredth birthday. And the reason I bring this up is because of the business that you and your wife worked on. And so the reason she, Miss Brenning, is in my mind and my brother's mind and literally decades of people is because of how many notes she would write. Uh-huh. I mean, like it was truly like you were her only student. And it, we only literally over Thanksgiving, we were talking about it must have taken her like an insane amount of time for the feedback for every single paper she wrote. And she did it for like 60 some years. And anyway, so... I, I found that really interesting as I was uh, looking at your book. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible how dedicated teachers are. And that's that's one of the things that we found like, from the beginning when we, when we started figuring out who we want to go serving, right? And, and we later built Feedback Panda to serve online English teachers, how much dedication they have for their craft, right? They love teaching, like literally. They don't, they don't just enjoy their job. They could not not do their job. Mm-hmm. Like in, in, in many cases, we, we were looking at people as our customers who were doing this, like online English teaching for Chinese companies, teaching through the internet, English as a second language to Chinese children somewhere in China. It was like this super niche business. But in many cases, these people were doing this as their second or third job. Hmm. That that kind of tells you a lot about either the the fiscal situation of these people (laughs) and their passion and the kind of excitement that they got from waking up at must have been two or three in the morning US because, you know, you teach in the late evening hours in China, which is really early, like long before uh, sunrise in, in the States, no matter where you are. And those people still got up before their own kids woke up taught for two to three hours, then made breakfast for their kids, and then went to their day job, which often was also teaching. Right, you know? right. And, th- and then they came back and tried to maybe fit in another hour of teaching and then did their reporting, uh, all this kind of really intense workload for people who were mostly struggling financially. So uh, we, we had a, a, an extremely good time helping those people who were severely underserved. Like you probably know like teachers paying for their own materials out of their own pockets and oh not gosh, getting so any true. funding from their their schools or even the parents won't pay for anything for their kids because they expect the teacher to pay for it. So you have these people who are starved financially and we could serve them with a cheap product, but really, really get them to save two hours of, of extra work time a day that they wouldn't have to do, which meant either making more money teaching because like this online English teaching was essentially a gig economy stuff. You would teach for half an hour and then you would teach another child for another half hour. Often those teachers and Danielle included, she was teaching often for 10, 12 hours a day. And that's like full on teaching. It's not just sitting there reading something. It's like dancing and singing, like really intense Skype style focus one-on-one teaching that drains you. And if you need to do two hours of unpaid work to even be paid for your teaching, that's what student feedback was in this case, it's going to drain you even more. And so so our product was really helping people through some sort of automation. We had like a templating system and teachers could share their say, templates you give a, with each other. Because, you, you know, you wrote a book called Zero to Sold, which we're going to talk right. about. And you had four, st- uh, four phases or uh, stages mm-hmm. of uh, the bootstrap um, business. And then you talk right. a lot about 
you know, your exit process, which we can dive into. So I want to kind of cover the four, the four mm-hmm. stages and then your exit story. But before we do that, Arvid, let's, I'd love to hear, you know, this topic that we were just talking about, you're explaining the problem, which I think is so important mm-hmm. of understanding the customer's demand and why they had a problem because, you know, to niche in sometimes, can help with exponential growth. I know you talk about that a little bit, but so just give us a little bit of a background on the business, how you guys created it, and then um, we can uh, dive into the journey. So yeah, so so Danielle was teaching from home, like essentially sitting in front of her computer and teaching kids in China because she had a, a leg injury. Essentially, she, she, she's a trained opera singer. Like Danielle is a, is oh, really? a professional musician, but if you have a leg injury, if you can't leave the house, Kind of hard to, you know, can't get people into your apartment, just hundreds of them. It just doesn't work. She needed a job that she could do from home online. So she found this online teaching um, platform in, in China. There's lots of them now. It used to be a couple of them back then. That was 2017. And she just started making a, a lot of time for that job because she could essentially spend as much time as she wanted teaching as many kids as she would. And she would get, I don't know, like 20, 30 bucks an hour. That's okay. that's like the, the the amount of money that you make. It's it's not stellar kind of money, but if you know. spend a lot of time, you know, it, you you can make make some good amount of cash. But again, it's it's very draining, and she felt that she she felt really drained. She and that was a pretty clear sign that there was something to build because she started building her own little system using Excel and Word. And I feel whenever people start using any kind of spreadsheet to yeah. do something, there's like a SaaS business in there somewhere, right? It just kind of yells at, okay, this can be automated apparently because people use automation software for this. And she had her own system, lots of Word documents, lots of Excel sheets just flying around and she would copy certain parts of what she wanted to say about the lesson because essentially these online English schools were, they had a curriculum that was pretty static. Like as a teacher, you would often teach the same lesson just to multiple students and it would be the exact same lesson, like a PowerPoint slide kind of thing, right? You would go through the yep. slides and you teach the words and you would sing a little bit. The song was kind of, um, they would tell you which song to use even, and you know, it's very structured. And if you need to give a student feedback after each of these 25 minute lessons, oh well, God. if it's the same kind of structure at all times, you will probably use the same text at all times. And that's what Danielle started doing. She wrote little templates in her Word documents. And she would just, just copy the text and put the name of the student in and then paste it and use another piece of text and write something. That was what she would do. And if, if you're like a software engineer or somebody who comes from a world where if you have to repeat a thing once, after you've done it originally, you start automating. <laughs> then this kind of looks like a veritable system that you could actually turn into logic, into software. So we looked into this and she, she showed me the system and she, we, we envisioned like what it could be. And she designed it. She conceptualized it because she knew exactly what her problems were. And she, mm-hmm. hadn't, she didn't have to guess what teachers felt, what kind of pains they ran into. She ran into these pains every single day. So the system that she envisioned, I just built it because I'm a software engineer, and I. I, I was going to say, so you got to give you got to give the listeners your your background. So you got your wife <laughs> right. who's got a broken foot, who is an opera singer, now teaching yeah. English, and you're just sitting there assessing her problems and figuring out how to yeah. systematize it. So what what led you to the point where you viewed this problem as an opportunity? Well, I've I've been building software for, for yeah last the last decade pretty much right I, I'm. Uh, 
was born in 85, so I think I'm 35-ish around that, like, probably. <laughs> As of right now, 2020 I, kind of puts a blur on everything, but yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you, it even makes you forget your own age at some point. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've, I've been working professionally as a software engineer for maybe 12 years at this point. And I started out like studying and dropped out of university a couple of times. I just went for the actual job because I enjoy building things. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, I had a, a quick son in, in Silicon Valley. I worked for for a startup, like a venture-backed startup there for a year remotely here from Germany too. And then worked for German traditional software engineering businesses and started a couple of things with a couple of friends here in Berlin and in other places. So I went through all of the different kinds of software engineering in my life. And I found the most enjoyable ones to be the ones where I was actually a co-founder of the business as well. Right? Cool. Where I was in a CTO role, where I was at a lead engineer or something where I could actually put my ideas into practice and not just somebody else's, right? Yep. And that was always enjoyable. So I had a couple of projects with my friends, like I said, in Berlin that failed horribly or didn't really go anywhere. You know, business, you try and you fail, but you learn something at all times. Like, well, even if, if we fail and when we did fail, we would learn why we failed or at least why we didn't succeed. And, and that would give us like some some kind of knowledge, some kind of interesting perspective for the next thing that I would I would be part of. And Feed the Panda was one of these things where we just really saw an opportunity to first off solve our own problem. And I'm saying our own problem. I was not a teacher, but Danielle spending 12 plus two hours a day not being my partner, that was a problem. Yeah. Right? For me as a even as a, whatever I would have been, it would have been a problem. I would like you back. <laughs> exactly. So solving this uh, through software solve my problem just as much as it solved hers because it would give us the opportunity to spend more time other people would have used this additional time for, to make more money to support their family we used it to actually be a family you know it's, it's just um an opportunity that, that we saw and then the moment we built something like the first prototype and then you started using it it immediately freed up the time just like we wanted this particular time to be freed up so we knew this solves a problem and since we also understood that Every teacher in this community, and I think when she started out, there must have been around 5,000 online English teachers in that particular school alone, right? And that's like the, the, the leading yeah. Chinese school that everybody else in China tried to copy. So you have like this, this whole ecosystem of copycat solutions that also tried to hire North American and English uh, or British wow. and South African native English speakers. So there was 5,000 people when we started. A couple months in, there were 7,000 people hired by that company. I think a year later, we must have been at 15,000. And when we then sold the company, they were at 75,000 teachers that they had hired as contractors. It was pretty clear that we were looking at an emerging market there, right? Online, online English teaching was a... It was nascent when we joined, but we saw that there was a trajectory. So we knew that if we built something right now to help the people that exist in the space at this moment, and we en- enable them just by, by, re- by being a nice and friendly brand to talk about us in a positive way, we wouldn't have to do any marketing. Like, we hoped at least, right? It turned right. out to be that way, but our idea was, okay, this is, this is something, a self-sustaining system. We just need to be in there and then we can grow with this market. Yep. And we did. Like wow. we, we honestly, we didn't do any paid advertising. We tried, we spent like a hundred or something dollars on, on Google ads and Facebook ads. Facebook was kind of okay. Google was like completely pointless. And once we saw, okay, this doesn't seem to affect our rates at all. We just really doubled down on community outreach, on being embedded in the community, just talking to people, responding to people where they are, which is mostly Facebook groups for our customers. 
and we provided content. We had a newsletter going and highlighted a member of our community to the rest of the community, just really trying to build more community in an, in a system where it was very tribal, like the, the teacher online teacher community was highly tribal. And if you follow like Seth Godin's oh, yeah, writing, the, yeah, yeah. He, he has a book book out called Tribes, and he he really makes makes it a, a thousand a thousand followers, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, a thousand true fans. And and the concept of this is you want a community that is heavily um, interconnected. Everybody follows the same people. Everything. Everybody has the same interests. And the moment you establish yourself as a reasonable voice of expertise in that community, your marketing is it's so extremely streamlined because you have this reputational baseline of being a part of a, of a tribal community, right? You don't need to convince people that you're trustworthy by being there and talking with people, communicating with people. You already built that trust so that everything you bring to the community, eventually, at some point, when you, when you have established that trust, people will trust. Mm -hmm. right? It takes a while to establish yourself in any given community. And it took us a while for people to get talking about Feedback Panda. But once they did, and we didn't need to incentivize that. We, we actually, we added a referral system at some point. We wouldn't ha actually have needed to. People were start were sharing our link even without it being incentivized to do because so. Like because they so just much. felt this is something that other teachers need, right? They, they were genuinely convinced that our tool was something that was a necessity to be a good teacher. Don't need ads. That's the best well, kind of uh, like you word of mouth you can have. Arvid, have you heard of uh, Jobs Be Done, Bob Mesta? He wrote a book yeah, yeah. called uh, Demand Side Selling. Bob's been on the show. Yeah. And yeah. You, like, what you're uh, describing and why I think this is important is, 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 especially in today's noisy marketplace, where when you truly understand what your mm -hmm. customers are struggling with and you're talking to them and meeting their struggling needs to make help them make progress. I mean, it's it yeah. sounds so simple, but like the reason I bring that up is because the SaaS business, I mean, there's so many people now trying to roll up SaaS companies and you name it because they've got great products, but the people, the SaaS founder doesn't necessarily know how to sell. But the problem is I watch these, these companies, Arvid, they spend so much money on ads, their client acquisition cost goes way down just to, because in this, this hopefully ties to the back end of your story where, you, you know, the valuations are based on a multiple revenue. So no one's really focused on profit. They're just like yeah. burn through the cash, grow the MRR, and then offload this system of companies or software to someone else. And it's just people lose sight of the customer, of making money, of helping people. <laughs> Not to say that both aren't bad. There's not a right or wrong necessarily, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I think there's a, a solid lean towards in your story is proof that what you yeah. did worked. I think funding is a, is, a, is a big point. I mean, if you have money to waste, you can. Right? <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you have uh, um, some sort of funding from, from a source that's just like throwing money at you and they say, well, have you tried paid ads? Well, sure, let's try paid ads, got money for it. But if you're a bootstrapper and that's what we were, and that's what I see most of these little niche businesses that actually succeed at being, like they, they don't have money to waste. Like we tried with a, a hundred euros. Honestly, at that point, that might've been like 10% of our monthly recurring revenue. That was a big expense, right? <laughs> because for, for somebody else, this is like, there's no money at all or it barely registers anywhere. But for us, it was a big experiment. So we didn't throw a couple thousand in there, just a hundred to see if it worked at all and, and to, to, to save us from, from wasting money. And, and find something better. I think that's the most important point. Like you have to find something else. I was just going to say, do you think that that, like the being diligent with your money, and it just 
has an impact on how focused you are on solving an actual problem while making money. You know what I mean? Like it's just, think it, so. people just lose sight of that. And I just find it so intriguing um, how that people, you know, it's cause you don't have to work as hard. If you just got money to spend, then you don't have to work as hard to figure out if the customers actually want it. You just like deploy millions of ads and hopefully a small percentage. I mean, it's like direct mail, like way 1% of right. the people are going <laughs> to spend, spend or come engage. And, and honestly, that the whole 1% of the people, I think that is that's symptomatic of this. Because if you look at the, the venture capital world, where one out of 100 businesses is supposed to win, and the other ones will likely fail, and that's already built into the funding system, that like you throw so much money into these businesses, hoping that one of them explodes and pays for the failures of all the others, well, then nobody will really look at your spending. Because obviously the the incentive there is to spend so much to capture the full market and you know like get the mm -hmm. hockey stick growth that you're incentivized to spend your money. I know. Because if you don't, if you build a sustainable business, well then you're not gonna explode. You're not gonna exhibit this hockey stick potential. Yep. That's uh, that it, it's hilarious to me that there are funding sources that would give you money but be disappointed if you turn it into a sustainable business. But that is, right? You know. You know, what, what I, I'm laughing because you are so spot on. Like, it's so crazy. I, I, I like because we play in this world of teaching entrepreneurs that are found, founders, not VC back, not PE back, how to build valuable businesses. And mm -hmm. sometimes you can grow yourself into bankruptcy. And like, there's this yeah. whole concept, like the pre, pre seed you know, $10 million valuation pre-revenue. It just like, doesn't make any sense. I mean, like I understand where that fits into the marketplace, yeah. but yeah. it can't be the entire marketplace. Most of the marketplace right. needs to focus on making money. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, and, and I agree it is, it is a real thing and it does work. It should not forget that, right? Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uber exists and Airbnb exists. And if you just look at the, the S1s and them actually like IPOing and stuff, there is a path to this. But the, the thing is, you look at how many people actually make it along this path and how many people don't. And that's why I feel as a, as a bootstrapper or as an indie founder or whatever you want to call it, self-funded uh, entrepreneur, I want as many people as possible to succeed at the same time. I don't want some to succeed hilariously and all the others to fail. And that's that's where the system. I mean, it's it's a risk weight system, right? You 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 it's broken though, like yeah, it's. Yeah. There was a uh, there's an article that I just re uh, read recently, Arvid, that is about how VCs and how much money that's chasing returns is going into the space. And there was this hilarious one about uh, food delivery and how like literally everybody in the supply chain now is losing money. The restaurants, yeah. the, the the food delivery apps, the drivers, everybody's losing money. Yeah, it's like because <laughs> no one. <laughs> it's like what the heck, man? No one said, hey can everybody make money along the way because there's yeah. an actual problem here and what are the economics to solve that problem yeah i don't understand it either it, it feels um, yeah it, it, it must be like, i only i can only reason here that the idea is to minimize risk for a, a special select group of people that are involved right? investors yeah, yeah, obviously in the returns right but at doing so much damage along the way, particularly to the most vulnerable of people. And I, I feel that that is why I don't want to be necessarily be part of. I mean, I I also invest, but I invest in in, in bootstrap companies. I'm I'm uh, 
invested in, in earnest capital, for example, right? That that is where I know, or that's that's what I know. I know how bootstrap businesses work. I know how, how SaaS businesses work. So I know that there is a path that all these companies that are in earnest, that like 10, 20, whatever amount of companies are in there per batch even, they all have a chance. So they all will produce revenue and that will flow back to me in some way. So by helping all of them with money, by helping all of them with advice, I can actually help every single person that is somewhere in there, not just a couple or help one and the others fall off to the side. I want all of them to succeed, right? <laughs> what a I, concept. I, was, I was fortunate enough to actually be able to build a successful and sustainable business with Danielle. Like we built something really neat. It grew and grew and grew, and then we got to sell it. This, this is not what happens to most people. And I want more people to have that because it opened up financial stability for us. It opened up completely new opportunities. I mean, the fact that I'm talking to you is a result of this, you know? And this is, this is important to understand. Like this is a, it's a step among many, but it's some, a step that few people can reach because the systems that are in place are so heavily disincentivizing from taking this path. Like either you get a job or you, you get VC money, but then there's always the risk. And then you they stamp you as a, as a failed founder. I mean, here in Germany, if you fail, it's the end of the world. In, in, in the States, or that's, that's what I understand it, it's less of a problem. Failure is fine as long as you can kind of rationalize it. And it's like a, a mark of honor on, on the way to, to, to your eventual success. But if you're a German entrepreneur and you fail horribly, nobody wants to talk to you anymore. At least that's how it used to be. It's changing. The world is interconnected and global, uh, globalized, I guess. But if if your whole life, and I was raised in Germany, I was educated in Germany, avoiding m making mistakes was paramount in our education system. And it likely is in almost all education systems anywhere, at least where grades are involved. And I don't want to go into this detour. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come, speaking from the, the teaching family, right? And I've got some... Right. Because in, in, in some way, it is, it is a, it's, a, it's a societal problem. It's a, um, a problem on a, on, a, on a much higher level. But if you've been raised like that, then starting a business is extra hard. And it, it's, there are lots of barriers in the way of getting there. Funding is hard to get and people will not help you because they fear the, the taint of failure to be on them as well. It's, it's the whole thing. So that that is super awesome context, Arvid, to to understand your intentions when you started the business. So mm -hmm. like if you've got an, a cultural voice talking about how failure is not a good thing. So I want to hear your mindset when you guys started the business. What was your intent? And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, intentional growth being the title of the podcast, like mm -hmm. growing with the end in mind. A lot of people don't start with that or they start right. with some, you know, very hazy vision of oh, someday I'll sell this or I'm going to have a great job. I, I want to curious. I'm curious on like when you started it, other than creation in the software, creative, artistic world, from the business perspective, what was your thoughts for the business? And then uh, what was the, I, like, how did you march towards it? Okay, this needs a bit more backstory, but it's a good one, I, I, I promise. Um, just at, at that time, in mid-2017, I was still employed as a salaried software engineer by, by a company here in Germany. They were in Hamburg, which is in the north, and I was living in Berlin, which is like three hours by car or by train. So I, I was commuting to that place three days a week, and I was working remotely from Berlin for two days a week. And if you have a three-hour train ride, 
or two and a half hour train ride every like for three days a week that's like five hours a day of commuting 15 hours a week that you have nothing to do and i was sitting in a train with we're in germany internet is uh or connectivity mobile connectivity is really bad if you're not in a big city so you're essentially sitting in a metal tube with nothing to do so what i what i did for most of the that time from those two and a half hours there and back was listening to podcasts just like this one and the indie hackers podcast and all, all kinds of podcasts related to entrepreneurship and software engineering, because that's what I was interested in. And I was reading a lot of books. I was reading The E-Myth by, by Michael E. Gerber. I was reading yeah. Built to Sell by John Orlow. I was reading Hooked by Nereal. And I was reading The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. You know, all these books that are really seminal. They're really, really good. And they can they, they show you from one particular perspective, each of them, how to build a business that doesn't have to be a gigantic business with hundreds of hundreds of employees, but can actually be your thing that you own and that generates value and wealth for you. So I, I spent like two years working for that company in Hamburg. That means I spent a good 100 weeks with 15 hours each just commuting. That was a lot of time for a lot of podcasts and for a lot of books. <laughs> so while I was working in that salary job, I was just really ingesting all this information. Honestly, if you ask me why I did this, I have no idea. It was just something that was super interesting to me then. Tim, I think it all started with Tim Ferriss. I found his podcast and that was before he was so deep into um, the more philosophical parts. He had more like entrepreneurial guests on. Yeah, he was and, doing the hacking of the four hour week and getting yourself out of your business before he was yeah. like diving into like the brain science and, 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 and the, oh. the mushrooms and stuff, which yeah, is exactly. still great. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I still enjoy that, but not the same way I, I, I yeah, found the, the initial content. content. And, and that's great. You see growth in him too, right? You see if, where, where he came from and what he is really interested in. Yep. And, he, and particularly seeing this was interesting for me as well because he said, okay, here's this guy who seemingly made it and he's still chasing something else, right? It's still something out there for him to find. And it was really cool. But all the other content that I found, the guests that he had on the show, they had their own shows or their own books. And I just dove into all of these things. So I had this, this foundation of knowledge that was just like sitting there ready to be used. And then at some point, Danielle had her injury and, and had her, I guess, pivot into teaching English online. And I had all of this stuff waiting. And then the moment we figured out, okay, this is something that is not just good for her. It's also good for all these thousands of other people out there. Um, we could just really use it. We, we understood what a good business is. And that's, that's why I always come back to when I talk about intentionality. I had read, read Built to Sell by John Orlow. And the whole point that he makes in this book is if you build a good business, it's a sellable business, right? A sellable business is a good business. And, and that is, you can exchange that. If your business is good, you can sell it. And if you can sell your business, it's probably good, right? So it, it's just about how to structure your business. And he talks about automation and focusing on one thing and diversifying your customer base. And there's a lot of good stuff in that book. I almost, I always recommend it because it's just really helpful. It was helpful to us. And understanding that I could build a sellable business that I don't have to sell, right? That a good business that runs without me, that is completely automated and, and highly well-documented that other people could run for me, that is something that I could run forever or I can sell it. It's, it's completely optional. That was the goal. That was always the goal behind Feedback Panda. And then I guess we never really thought what exactly we were going to be doing if we we're going to sell it or if we're going to be growing it, we just wanted to run it because we wanted to, to, to have the entrepreneurial experience. The only goal that I had, which is hilarious because it's pretty 
basic of, of a goal, I wanted to reach 50K MRR. That was my goal for the whole business. If you look at a SaaS business, that is like a pretty low bar. If you have a, like a sustainable business, you can grow it to that. And then and had no goals after that. Once we reached that, I was like, hmm, what now? <laughs> you know, like I, I didn't have any further goals. So I, I'm probably going to work on that for the next business. But um, <laughs> other than 500 people, grand a monthly recurring revenue, right? <laughs> probably, you know, because, because that is a that is a much, much more interesting goal in terms of the eventual valuation of the business. But still, I the goal was build a really cool business, learn how to do it and then do it and then have it and see what comes of that. And I want to pull that thread, Arvind, to say, like, how did your decisions I mean, you only own the business for two years, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sold it. So I want to kind of take those, uh, some of these milestones in chunks, but how did your decision from the beginning of built to sell, right? Like, or having the options, you mm -hmm. know, my partner and I just did a podcast about annual income versus long-term value creation and how, if you're thinking about the value of the business, your decisions are going to be different along the way, potentially. Right. So that's, that's curious a good, on good how- yeah, yeah. So, like, operationally, maybe like some stories of like how your decision of built to sell or having the options impacted certain decisions, and then where along the way did you understand valuations? I'm curious on how that uh, journey went. <laughs> Smiling, yeah, if, if I understand them at all at this point, because you know. But um, okay, let me yeah, let me get to that. Um, so operationally, we, we focused on keeping as much money in the business as possible, just really make it um, recession-proof and make it stable and um, keep, retain the value that it had. We didn't really have much to actually invest it in because we didn't have these, these marketing sinkholes where we could have thrown the money yeah. in. We had word of mouth, pretty stable word of mouth marketing. It was slow, but it was there, right? And if you have something that is really like sustainable or it is sustained... <laughs> <laughs> it's free. It happens. The only thing we need to do is like write in our newsletter about how great our customers are. Like, yeah, all right, we're going to keep doing that. Right. So um, our operational expenses were fairly low. The, the business itself, like technically was fairly cheap. Like, we, we ran it on a pretty uh, small Google cloud system and we barely had any expenses when it came to to external services. The only thing that we really paid lots of money for was a database because we had a hosted database, mm -hmm. uh, database as a service. We used that because we didn't want to hire a database administrator or anything like this. And I think that is the point that I want to make here. We didn't hire at all. We started with two people and two years in, we were still two people. And wow. we, we automated everything we could, particularly when it came to customer service. So we used intercom in, in the little, you know, the chat widget in the corner. And we used that system heavily for all of our communication. Our newsletter went through there. Our yeah, customer service chats went through there. We had used their knowledge base extensively. So whenever some customer would have a problem, we would solve it for the customer. And if it, we never had written a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to solve this problem, we would write it at that point, put it in the knowledge base. And if somebody would come to with the same question again, Intercom is so good at recognizing this that they would automatically suggest the article from the knowledge base. And that's one less customer communication that you have to do because they could solve their own problem. So we, It was almost like the current, same exact philosophy that you had in the product for customers, exactly. right? Because like yes. the teachers were using automation yep. to respond to their students exactly. and you were using automation to respond to the teachers That's about right. how to use it's, the it's, system. It's it's a very recursive uh, application <laughs> of a lot of automation in the system. And it worked well for them in the product and it worked well for us outside of or, or through the product. We... Um, we just set up good standard operating procedures and how to resolve uh, people's problems. 
knowing that eventually we would need to hand those over either to our own employees or to somebody else who wants to hire. Doesn't matter. We kept them going. It kind of helps that I'm German because I love documentation for some reason. It seems to be <laughs> genetic with us. And, and, and when we when we sold the business, I, I did like an 11-hour video walkthrough through the code base for the, the developer that was going to replace me. I, I think you may, might, might have watched it. I hope you did. But it was just really enjoyable for me to, to walk through my own work and then comment on it for somebody else to pick up where I left off. Yeah, we automated as much as we could. We documented as much as we could. We built systems that were completely autonomous and self-sustaining. The software itself was self-healing. If like there was any server issue, it would do you its thing. Scripts behind you. <laughs> Love that. It, it would. It would all try. To, I, I tried to remove myself from the business as much as possible. In terms of money, we we tried. Like I said, we kept it in in the company. We really didn't do. We didn't take any money out of the business. We we kept it in there, which. It didn't really make any difference when we sold it because we still like paid paid salaries and stuff, but um, it it really kept us able to respond to certain things. And had COVID hit, hit a year earlier or two years earlier, we'd have a good solid amount of couple months more runway than other mm-hmm. companies would have. You know, that that was the the idea is to to have it at least recession proof. Or recession ish, recession proof ish, right? Ish, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All um, the English teachers, if they're listening in, would be freaking out with our uh, yes, <laughs> uh, words. So, so um, Arvid, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious along that as you're doing this, you know, you talked about in your book, like you th- because you had this mindset of built to sell and having choices is. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, what do you do with the business? Where did you start to learn about valuations? When and how would the time be right? And what was your journey in your mindset of of what and how? Because I want to start walking through that that journey of ex- actually selling the business. Hmm. That's very interesting. I I knew that the thing was going to be sellable because we set it up to to be sellable or at least a well documented and highly automated business, but we never wanted to sell. And like we never looked actively looked for anybody to sell the company to, we we just kind of got there. I, I don't know. Like so, we we had our business listed on indiehackers.com. We we had a little product page there, and we had our Stripe revenue, Stripe verified revenue listed on that website too. Right. So every every day, people could check like what's the current MRR for Feedback Panda, and it would automatically be in a graph. And the graph went like from the bottom left to the top right. So it was an interesting graph, <laughs> and it wasn't just interesting for people who wanted to see how other businesses are doing. It was actually interesting for potential acquirers as well. And the people who eventually did acquire us, Shortswift Capital, um, as a private equity company. They found us there. They looked through the database of SaaS businesses. They found one that had the right form of graph, and they started reaching out to us. Like um, Kevin, Kevin wait, wait a second. You're, you're saying that an, a private equity firm wanted to buy a company that had a 45 degree straight line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Weird, that, right? And and that is that is so nice to know because when Kevin reached out, he, he sent an essentially a cold email to Danielle because she's the CEO or was the CEO of the business because her idea, her thing. She's uh, she gets to to lead the business. Obviously, she then started talking with him. She like figured out, okay, nice that you are interested in potentially acquiring the software. And he he phrased it in the way he said, "We we saw your business. We really like it. Are you interested in selling? If not, perfectly fine. Let's just talk. Like this, this is just me reaching out, asking if you're fine." And we said, "Yeah, sure. Let's let's have a chat." And then we we had a chat, and there was a couple of other people who were interested in it too at that point because we just really 
gotten to 50k MR, and I think that's when you start to show up on a couple radars. And we, we had a couple, couple conversations uh, and became clear to me at least that I was ready to sell at that point. I had never really considered it because we didn't have anybody reaching out, but we had then. And I felt I was kind of getting into like a burnout zone because I was, as much as we had automated, there's still, we had 5,000 customers. Something would come in at, at some point, right? People would ask, people would um, have a problem. And if something broke, we had a couple of integrations into these online schools. And if they changed their, I don't know, website, we had to fix our integration and they wouldn't wouldn't tell anybody that they were going to change their website. They were just going to change it. So I would have to immediately, you know, build a solution. And that could happen at three in the morning or at eight at night. It, it could happen at any point. And that right. was stressful because there were always my phone was always like one message away from pulling me out of whatever I was doing and getting me back into the business. So I was spreading myself thin. I didn't hire anybody. Big mistake on my part to, to take care of these things for me because I I should have hired some some person to just look into server maintenance and keeping stuff rolling, but I didn't. It was all on me as well. And so I felt ready to give this to somebody else. And we also figured out this is our only asset, really, right? We both were working on this. It was it was worth a lot, but if we stopped working on this tomorrow, it wouldn't be worth a lot after that, right? We, we needed to diversify and in terms of our own wealth at this point. So we were ready to look into it. And then we started reading the proper literature, like looking into how other companies who sold it, have sold their businesses, how they approached it, what valuation is, what the, the multiples are, like how, what is EBITDA, what, what's that? Because you, you don't run into <laughs> yeah. it. We didn't even have a P&L sheet because who, who would we need it for? We didn't have to report to anybody. We ran the business, right? So we had to do a P&L. We had to really make sure that everything is uh, fine with our taxes and all the documents are in place just even for, for this initial conversation, let alone the due diligence at some later point. I listened to every single episode of John Warlow's Built to Sell radio podcast, which at that point was like 200 episodes in. That was remember, a, hearing my dad. <laughs> I my, my, dad my, was on, my dad was yeah. on Warlow's podcast and then uh, John's been on our podcast a couple of times. Yeah, it's uh, a yeah, go, go keep going. Yeah, we, we, we got to be on his show as well, which was really nice because like all, all the guests that, that he had really helped us figuring out so what are red flags, what is what is um earnout, like how do you structure a deal, what is a strategic acquisition, what you know, all, all of these things. I had no idea. But just listening to a couple weeks worth of podcast, just eye-opening. And I think he actually has a book out uh in a couple of weeks in, in January 2021 called The Art of Selling a Business. So his, he's working on that particular part right now because uh, yeah, the book is, is about everything that he learned from that and in his consulting you, business. So how did you take some of that knowledge that you'd learned from podcasts and from these books and start to apply? Did you reach out to brokers? Did you start to like, you know, like what, how did you start to take that knowledge and turn it into action? And, you know, how, how long was that timeline? Yeah. Oh, that was actually quite quick. Um, we, we reached out to brokers, had a had a com conversation with them just for like getting a feeling for the initial valuation that they would give our business. But we decided not to necessarily put our business on the market through them because we, we essentially already were in, in talks with people and it felt like this could go somewhere. Let's see. Let's not overcommit to, to this whole process with multiple people, right? Because we, we were just two people and we were running a business at its most at the time, right? We were already at the... Um, at full capacity from just running the business. I mean, I was on a verge of burnout 
adding one more thing, probably not a good idea, but it was at least something enjoyable and new and something with the potential of really changing our lives. So yeah, brokers were a big thing. Just really making sure that the documents that we were signing were fine. You know, like um, any LOI, any any kind of agreement, even an NDA, these kind of things, they, they have to be in our favor or we don't sign them, right? And and just applying that knowledge from the show and from the books that I read that, that really helped us and, and Danielle did, did her research too. And she was really good at negotiating, something I can't do for some reason. I'm not a good negotiator, but she is. <laughs> Leave and, to the um, teacher, right? <laughs> it's, it's awesome because like she, she got us... Um, the, the final price that we wanted and all these kind of things. So she, she did a, did an amazing job at navigating the, the business and the relationship with our um, acquirer through the, throughout this whole phase, but it really didn't take too long. I don't know. Why Arvid, did you, did you hire a, so you had the PE firm that had reached out, you had some people reaching out from Indie Hacker mm-hmm. and you know, obviously creating some attention because of the, the 50 K MRR, did you did you hire a broker and did you end up selling to the person that reached out to you and why did you make that decision right because like so and the reason i'm asking this question is there the amount of out of the blue offers that are happening right now because money is chasing returns that people see like the dollar sign that someone might offer but not realize that that's not how much goes into your bank account on closing and so there's all this thought process like do you take the out of the blue offer do you hire a broker investment banker why do you do that? The, you know, I know you, you're not going to be talking about the specific numbers, but maybe talk about the deal structures mm-hmm. that, you, that you learned about. So we were, we didn't have to sell. That that maybe is the most important part, right? We were not yeah desperate or anything like this. So we, we selling was an option, and we had a sellable business. But like I said initially, a sellable business is a well running business, so we might just continue running it. So um, we had our our own demands, and they were pretty strict. Like we wanted to get rid of the whole thing. Like we, we didn't want to be involved in it necessarily. Like we, if it was a, something that we could choose to stick around in a, another capacity, fine. But we didn't want this to be part of our sale. So no earnout. That was essentially the thing. And we we wanted our business to be in the hands of people who would actually continue running it. Because our initial mission was to help teachers. When it wasn't to build a gigantic business and make lots of money, it was to help these teachers. And we wanted those teachers to continue to be helped. So... We, we would only sell to somebody who wouldn't fold it into something else or wouldn't like, you know, the acquire or, you know, all these, these potential options out there, no deal for us. We wanted to sell it and somebody would keep it running. They would hire people to run it, to staff it, and then run it and keep those people, those online English teachers, keep them in their jobs and keep them sane. That was the whole idea. Mm-hmm. So that kind of restricted the amount of candidates that we would seriously consider. And we talked to everybody, we made our demands and and the people that couldn't or wouldn't go with them, well, they said, oh, yeah, it's just not a fit. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have a broker for that. We just did these things too. We, I mean, I being say, in Berlin. Did you, how did you find those people? Because I think, you know, you, you're pulling on a thread uh, of a mm-hmm. theme that we love, which is having options. Because then you can increase the chances that you get what you want, whatever the hell it is. So yeah. By understanding your demands is one part of being intentional, but the next one is getting enough options present. So if you didn't hire a broker, how did you get a bunch of options? And then how did you do this when you were in the, already on the verge of burnout? For, for some reason, they were just there. Honestly, we didn't look for them. They came to us. And I, I guess, I mean, we, we've been fairly vocal about our business, our, the success of our business in the, the founder communities. So everybody who has a foot in those communities as a private equity company, and, and SureSwift is one of these because they are 
Um, lots of the people who sold to them are now very active still in the indie hacker, indie founder community. And they have a large network of alumni because Shuswift, I think, has like 39 SaaS and content businesses under their belt and in their portfolio at this point. So they have a lot of founders. And w- one of the guys who sold to Shuswift, Tyler Tringas, is the person who founded Ernest Capital. And they are like in, in the community. It's, like it's, Kevin, it's McCardle a, it's a a, Kevin McCardle lives in Minnesota and he's a friend of mine. <laughs> Exactly. Like yeah, Kevin, Kevin is is also invested in earnest. So everybody is kind of in the, yeah, 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 in the yeah. same awesome. same group there. So there's a lot of communication and a lot of exchange. So if something is on a radar here, it's also on the radar over there. So you get a couple of people. But um, honestly, we didn't do much to get those people to talk to us. They just talked to us, and we we took our time to be very diligent. And I think that's an important thing to to mention here, like doing our own due diligence on those people, like not just talking to them and having them tell us that they're going to give us millions of dollars or something like that, but actually reaching out to other people who sold to them, other people who may have not sold to them, you know, like doing our like buyer or or seller side due diligence and, and really researching who these people are, where the money is coming from, like where those funds are located, what, the, what they're structured, like really doing some deep dive into the, the backgrounds of who is going to potentially going to be acquiring the business. And we, we just did that on the side while we were still running our business, but we, we, we weren't pushed around, which was great. Like knowing that there was no, if you, if you don't talk to us within the next 24 hours, we're never going to talk to you again. Like this, these kind of tactics did not happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess this sounds like an advertisement for Shuswift Capital at this point, but it should be because they were great and uh, everything went super smoothly. The whole process, like everything from this initial chat to did the first um, exchange, like actually like LOI and That's the first so offer. And- and I have to be honest, Arvid, this is just super hilarious for me because I didn't know that you sold their Shuswift Capital. And so like the fact that I had lunch with Kevin, one of the founders like a month ago, because he lives in Minnesota is just hilarious. Yeah. And you're living in that Germany. Is... I mean, and truly, because they, like, they have a conscious capitalist long hold type yeah. approach. So I think it's just yeah. interesting that through your whole organic process, you ended up selling to a guy that's here in the a friend city. of yours. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, f- it feels hilarious. We, we met Kevin in, uh, it was in <laughs> Dubrovnik. Uh, at, at uh, MicroConf Europe at the conference, like they were like sponsoring the conference there. And that was just a, a couple months after we had sold to him. So it was really nice, a really nice meeting that guy that we've been chatting uh, through Zoom or did, did we already have Zoom at that point? I don't even know. Technology is like, um, you never know. But we were just chatting with him and we had a great time, like spending spending some time going to have, have dinners with, with the, the Shurst crew and just getting getting to know all these people who took over our business. It was it was really enjoyable. And it, again, opened a lot of doors being in this community because all of a sudden you have this kind of network of founders who are doing their own thing, like Tyler or or Moritz Dausinger, also fellow German, sold to Shurst a couple of times and is now building <laughs> his next SaaS business. All of a sudden those doors open. It's really, really cool to, to just be connected with people. Yeah. Um uh, and that was that was definitely worth it, particularly because, like I said, burnout was a, a phase that I was in. It was great to to not have to deal with these things after selling because the transition, even the transition period where we handed over the business, I think that was over within within a week or two. It really didn't take too long because right. again, 
completely sellable business, everything automated, everything documented. Well, what do you need to do? There's no secrets anymore, right? We yep. have put that all into our documentation and SOPs and our manual and whatever. So, so that was super smooth. Um, and then I just started yeah. writing. Did you have other people besides SureSwift that were sitting at the table? And I'm curious, like, if you did, you know, you said one of your non-negotiables was no earnout, right? And not being there. So, like, did you at any point have the ability to weigh option or per, like options of valuation and terms and condition? Because, like, the big thing, Arvid, is that when we talk about, you know, you might have two valuations, mm-hmm. how they come to that valuation might be different how you get the money might have different strings attached. So there's a, I I did a podcast years ago. One said, you tell me the price, I'll tell you the terms and conditions, right? So there's, (laughs) so like, well, give it, do you have like comparison or how did you go get to the point where you were able to quantify what was in front of you? Honestly, we we, we didn't have too much of a comparison at that point because all all the ones, uh, the other ones that we were talking about or talking to, they just kind of dismissed themselves at some point because of our like stringent conditions that we had. So it, it really didn't go too far, or at least not to a point where we could do this particular comparison. Mm-hmm. So it, it was all about finding something that worked for for us and for SureSwift at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they they were from the beginning they were a, a, a no earnout cash deal kind of situation, and that's that's what it's you find on the website. So it passed the test right off the bat, right? I, I'm allowed to talk about this particular stuff because they publicly talk about it yeah. on their website and in the community. There's certain things that are different for every single deal, which is the reason why we never really talk about specific numbers or specific months or percentages or whatever, because our business that the two of us built, if somebody else, two other people in the room next door had built that would look completely different, right? So even mm-hmm. though you may look at a similar like ARR or MRR or whatever, the expenses that we have here as a German company, if you move to France or if you move to like a Honduras or something, completely different game. So mm-hmm. the numbers, yeah, if, if you talk about this only in multiples and, and fairly large intervals of multiples, if at all, but they were from the from the beginning quite compatible with our business because the other businesses that they had invested in or they had purchased or acquired were pretty much like our business mm-hmm. subscription based highly automated b2b-ish businesses i mean we we were not a b2b business we were also not a b2c business we were in between yeah. because we were selling to, to freelancers like individual agents so we, we called ourselves like a b2bc it's like mm-hmm. business customers, like prosumers, I think is the, yeah. the fancy yeah. term for that. Like people who have a budget, but are not part of a larger entity. So yep. essentially yeah, self-employed. And, and that was always an interesting um, group of people to sell to because they, they actually have a budget, mm-hmm. but they don't have this gigantic process of sales. If you sell to them, you can do it on a on a low touch system like a SaaS that just has a landing page. Yeah, they click just, on sign up. Yeah. Right? You don't have to talk to sales and then talk to a VP of sales and then have to talk to I don't know like the, <laughs> yeah. the founder's gra- grandma or somewhere. You, you, just, you don't have to go through the whole show. Rigmarole of the whole di- directly class. sell and and that's what Showsurf is also looking for. Those these kind of easily low touch maintainable businesses because that just fits their portfolio. We were one of the. They knew that, we knew that, made the whole discussion much easier. So we're in the process, like when you're looking, thinking, when you finally decided that you guys wanted to sell and mm-hmm. the, the dollar amount was right, the terms, conditions, all that stuff. Why did you sell? What did you want to do after? You have a whole section here because this podcast, I don't know if I told you, Arvid, was used to, it used to be called Life After Business before I renamed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it started out because I didn't know what my, I didn't know yeah. what to do after we sold. 
Right. It was just truly like it is some, you know, more like mental identity crisis. I yep. read Bo oh, Berlin's yeah. book. So like this whole kind of concept and then because I know we're running short on time is like, so why did you decide to sell? What was your plan afterwards? And why did you decide not to keep it and hire someone with all the profit that you're making? Well, that's an interesting one. But, but because I was stupid, I guess. <laughs> that, that would be the answer okay. to, to the last one. But, <laughs> you know, like some of these options are perfectly clear in hindsight but they are not in the, in the present moment. So I was in, at a state mentally where I was very anxious, very stressed. And the, the fact, it's, it's, it's pretty weird because I, I could have just hired somebody to essentially do my job and pay them and still uh, generate revenue through the business and have dividends or whatever. But I felt at that point, like even the fact that I would need to train somebody to do this would be too much. You, you know, just like spent 11 hours stage. recording a video. I mean, I, come I am on. not saying that there's is, there aren't discrepancies in the story, right? <laughs> but it, it, this this is the problem. This is maybe this is exactly the problem. Is that your your you have cognitive bias and you have cognitive what what's the word for it? Dissonance. Uh, yes, the, the, the cognitive dissonance between what you know is happening and what you know can happen. Like it, it just that moment you just feel I went out of there. And as much as I also wanted to like sell the business and, and get to financial stability, one of the, the driving factors at that point, which is totally my fault, like I didn't figure this out earlier and dealt with it, was this kind of being overwhelmed by where I was and what I was doing. So may not be the perfect choice to sell, but it was definitely a great choice. It elevated our standard of living, right? Fin financial independence is a good thing to reach. And definitely makes anything beyond it much more interesting, or at least makes you, makes more Freedom. optionality, right? right. And because I, honestly, what, what you just described, that uh, you sell and then you don't know what to do, the void, you know, that happened to me too. I, I had no goals. I was just like, I'm going to sell this and then be rich forever. Or, I don't know. I, I just really didn't have that any anything. I'm um, going to want to do something do. afterwards anyways, right? I, I knew that I was going to do something. Like I have enough trust in, in my own capabilities that if I wanted to do something in the future, I would probably get to do something in the future. Yep. But what it was and what exactly I was going to do this year or next year or whatever, I didn't have an idea. I just wanted to be done with this and then kind of reflect on it. Because one of the things that I wanted to do while running and growing Fita Panda was to write about it. I, I had this one article that I kind of wrote whenever I had a minute or two between whatever fire I was kind of, <laughs> kind of dealing with at the moment. And I, I wrote an article on how I dealt with my anxiety running the business while I was anxiously running the business. Like that was what I had time for. So that kind of it made, made it apparent to me that I kind of liked writing because it gave, gave my mind this ability to channel and reflect and turn something Therapy, that was right? <laughs> nebulous and vague into something meaningful and concrete. And that was the first thing that I did after we, we sold the business. I started writing for a blog. I, I you know, the Bootser founder is what I founded at that point, just because I needed an outlet for my thoughts and to, to, to take what I had learned and actually manifest it into something that other people could use. So I'm not unlike you, just starting something to, to share and communicate with people. I started something to share and communicate with people, but it wasn't planned. Like I really didn't have this whole thing set up. I just, the moment we sold, I knew, okay, I need to do something soon. So let's figure out a couple of ideas, open a notion document, put a couple of things in there, maybe a couple of domain names that would be interesting and just collected information. But 
yeah, that, that, that was it. There wasn't really too much contemplation towards what was going to happen afterwards. The fact that we sold or that we would sell kind of appeased me in a way, knowing that there, there, there would be time for dealing with all this stuff later. Now I figure out on getting this deal done and getting the transition through, like co completed without running into issues. And we did that. And then that was over. And then we just sighed a yeah, the heavy sigh of relief and figured out what to do next. Pretty much. You know what I call that, Arvid, is phantom anxiety. I went from like mm -hmm. hundreds of emails to, wait a second. You, you just kind of have this, like, you're kind of jumpy like a beaten dog. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I, I have P PTSD for intercom message sounds. Do, do, you, <laughs> do you know that? Like yeah. when, when the thing pops up and this little bing. Sound. I, whenever I hear that now, I, I I need to go into my email list to server down, and then I notice I'm not running the business anymore. Honestly, well, it's, it's interesting. And you hit on this topic that we literally just covered in a podcast. It's not even released as we're recording this yet, but it's there's two concepts that we teach in our in our material. And I'll have to give you access to our course, but the is separating your ownership role, the equity, the as a financial asset compared to your management role, which is what you get a paid for a job. And if yes. you realize that those two are different and you can transition those differently, you could then, then you have to shift your mindset to focusing on long-term value creation, the value of this financial asset, which allows you to then reinvest in this whole concept of hiring to replace yourself without having to sell. You have to invest. And what happens is either people can't afford because they're living to the edge of their distributions or pay, or they don't think about this. I had this guy, Arvid, he said, I just need out because of all the, his, and his, it wasn't intercom messages. It was, he's a manufacturer and it was insurance. He goes, mm -hmm. I never want to do another insurance renewal ever again. And oh, they make sure. millions of dollars. But then yeah. I said, how about you pay me a half a million dollars? I'll do all your insurance for you. Yeah. And it's just this concept of, do you know that you can replace yourself? Yeah. But there's this, I don't know what it is about that experience where you kind of know you can, but you still have this anxiety there. Unless you take the time. I don't, I don't there's this certain people do enough of a longer process of going through that where it's not, they're not replacing themselves out of burnt out you know, being burnt out. It's, it's an intentional process, but that whole concept that you said that this might be the exact problem. I see that people don't realize that that that's a thing until afterwards. And they compare it to seeing the zeros and ones in the matrix. Well, well, you, you know, like um, for look at family businesses and in, in some way that long period of the parental generation owner, giving it over to the, to their kids they're, not only do they have a long time to prepare them for, but they also can actually expose them to what they're going to be doing, right? It's like, you know that if, if, I don't know, your dad or your mom has a business and you're going to be the next in line, they will show you, they will like involve you, they will like show you every single part of the business and you'll rise through the ranks and you'll be just under them and then they'll give you more responsibility and they'll talk to you about their fears and their problems. And all of that does not exist if you found a software business from nowhere. <laughs> and then you are at that point and you haven't groomed somebody to replace you because obviously this thing just exploded out of nowhere and we don't even have kids. So like, who are we going to give it to? The neighbors? So that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So you, you don't have this kind of experience at um, seeing somebody understand the business through long exposure like you did. And I think that's what kept me at this point. It's like I, nobody could do this job because to be able to do this job, you need to have all the knowledge that I have. 
pointless thought, but it was in there, right? It was just, it was what my, my brain was telling me was nobody could replace you because nobody has your level of experience. Yeah, probably not true, but it, it's definitely one of those kind of founder bias situations where, well, if somebody else had this capability or experience, wouldn't they have built this business, right? Why, why are we the only business in this space? You, you kind of, it's, it's a, it, it may be a delusion or maybe like a, a self-elevating kind of comment, but it, it was definitely somewhere in my mind that I couldn't find anybody to do this for me. And then people like Kevin come along and they tell you, yeah, of course, like we find these people every week. Like, okay. And hopefully I told you that after uh, you, yeah. you had the check. <laughs> but I think it's an interesting concept though, Arvid, because mm-hmm. the work that you did of recording an 11-hour video to yeah. go over your software and all the automation and you had the mindset to begin with a built to sell, yet you still ran into this yes. problem. And that's, it shows to your point that it's so difficult for founders until they've sold to get this mindset. But if if people can listen to this podcast and understand that this is a thing, they might not have to sell, right? I would if, like that. Concept- I, I, would, I would like, so, sorry, I would like for no, people to understand that um, there are many, many options. And I think what you, what, what you do in making sure that people understand that there is a distinction, that, that it's multiple personalities in, in a way, right? It's just the, the, the owner of the business, the, the people executing the business. And if you if you follow just really what Michael E. Gerber is, is writing or Gerber is writing in the e-myth, he also says there's the technician, there's the manager, and there's the visionary, right? Yep. You need these three people to build a reliable business. Most people think being a good technician, being good at what you're doing is enough, but no, it needs to be managed and it needs to be owned. It needs to have a vision. And yep. if you if you are a solopreneur, if you are a person building your own business and nobody is there helping you, you're just really everything in, in one, then you need to understand that you need to make time for the other two that you're likely not as much as that one, which is like, likely the technician. And you need to give them the space to grow and develop in your mind. And mm-hmm. it's hard to keep multiple personalities with different diverging and often opposing interests in your mind at the same time. Honestly, just before we recorded this, I was talking to to another founder and she was saying this too, like she she has certain things in her business that she wants wants to do. And then she has certain other things that she wants to do because it involves the co-founders in her business and she wants to make them feel um, that they get credit for their involvement in the business. But she's the person that everybody in her community knows. So she wants to like, talk about her co-founders and elevate them and show them to her community, but the community doesn't care. She's the one, she is the, 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 the bright brand of, mm-hmm. of the business that she's involved in. And so now she, as an owner of the business, she should just go with what works, right? What brings in the customers. But as the, the person managing the business, she wants to make sure that the team is happy and that, you know, it's, it's just really contrasting, but it's in the same person. It's on the, in the same mind and you need to be able to deal with this. Well, and I think interesting, Arvid, because like, I agree with you and we don't have, we should almost at some point just rally offline is, is the financials. Like I, there's so many visionaries are like you and I, and like you have this idea of what you want and you can't figure out a way to connect the dots. You end up just selling it or doing something drastic to, to change your situation. But the reality is all those different roles that you talked about, you can, replace your own salary by hiring someone else. Then you have this financial asset. There's different ways. All of it comes down to money and understanding the annual income and how much the profit and that income, what is the cost structure of the payroll, all those things. And then what's the value of this asset? And then being able to weigh options like, okay, I want to take this much out 
but I want to reinvest this. I want to reward people. And most people, I didn't know financials like this. And you just, there, there's so many times people can't connect the dots and they just get exhausted from it. Yeah. But, but yeah, because nobody teaches you because I, I think also, and, and that's, we had this earlier in a conversation, right? Where you are in a don't fail kind of schooling mentality. You, you don't diversify because you need to be good at one thing. So you, you, you kind of forget all the other things. So we go to school yeah. for, I don't know, engineering or just management or the just financial stuff. So, so I come out of a yeah engineering degree that I didn't finish, <clears throat> but still, you know, like everything that I learned there was about computers and building stuff. There was <laughs> zero knowledge about how to build a company. There was right. zero knowledge about how to, to keep your books even, like just does not exist because it's not important to your special specialization. And we all are like specialists in some way. And then we try to build a business that suddenly needs you to be a generalist. Yeah, almost you need three HR, different kinds. AP, AR. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? The kind, of, the kind of jobs that I had in, in our business, like I, I was a customer service agent. I was a customer service technician. I did financial things. I did marketing. I did like sales. And all of these things need to happen in one person at all given times. It's, it's not surprising that people go crazy in this world and just go <laughs> super stressed because it, it's hard for us to, to cognitive context switch between these things when all we're taught all our lives is how to do one thing good and hopefully not fail at it just right. it something you have a culture learn. where you're not allowed to fail at least in, uh, that, in America, that makes it gotta... particularly hard yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so this has been a lot of fun i i, I honestly i just enjoyed so many parts of this um Okay, let's give the audience the best place to find you your book and all the material that you have and then i've got one additional question before we wrap up Cool. Well, th thanks so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, yeah, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter, um, Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. I'm there way too much every single day, <laughs> tweeting tweeting way too much. Um, yeah, the book Zero to Sold you can find on any given bookstore, but zerotosoldbook.com is where I have all the additional material and stuff. I'm writing a new book called Audience First. Oh, cool. um, which is which is going into detail on the initial kind of finding your audience and making mm -hmm. sure they have a problem that you can actually solve. Um, that would be at audiencefirst.link. And um, honestly, just yeah, follow me on Twitter. You'll find the find me there way more than I should. Be. <laughs> and you have, I, you know, I got to say that you do have a, a good chunk of the book on your website too. You got a lot of great material and content that you've written out there. So props to you on mm -hmm. that. Um, last question: What does the word intentional mean to you? Hmm. It means saying no, I think. That, that is something that I learned the hard way because I'm a people pleaser, I guess. That's, that's what you'd call it. But saying no is fine too and actually will lead you to, to more success than saying yes to everything and then kind of half-assing it. I need to internalize that. That is very well. <laughs> yeah, me too. My, yeah, my, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my business my business partner who's listening in is going to go, yeah, Ryan, did you hear what Arvid said? Uh, Arvid, this has been a blast, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed that episode. My big takeaway for you is how crucial it is that you understand the difference between the management role that you have and what you get a paycheck for and all those duties is completely different than the equity ownership role that you have 
Both of those roles can have completely different journeys if you understand them and if you understand where your income's coming from, what the value is of that financial asset, aka your business long-term, and how your decisions to reinvest in the company impact that value and impact the role that you have as a manager. By understanding your management role versus ownership role and income solving for this year versus long-term value creation, those two concepts can help you understand the landscape of what you eventually want to do with your business. I'm obviously super biased, but the best way to do this is to learn and educate yourself. We have an online course with five and a half hours of deep dives into valuations, exit options, value creation, strategic planning, financials, you name it. Go check it out on arcona.io. If you got any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.